From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. After the Boulder supermarket shooting, we've been fielding a lot of questions about guns, gun ownership, gun laws. CPR's investigative reporter Ben Marcus joins us with answers. Plus, a poet writes about the tulips she left at the King Super's memorial, about the burden those flowers must carry. Also, Colorado might create an office of new Americans. A hub for everything that they need to call Colorado home. That's Representative Iman Judah, the daughter of immigrants and the state's first Muslim legislator. We'll talk about her path and her policies. And later, masks, social distancing, griping about restrictions. It's the scene now and a century ago. Throughout the pandemic, it was such a time of confusion and frustration. Hi, I'm Allison Sherry from CPR News. Every day, I aggressively seek out the most important criminal justice news in the state and deliver it to you with context. I'm thankful that you value responsible fact-based journalism that gives you insight on how Colorado's justice system works. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's happening in all parts of the state. Today, I'm asking you to make this reporting possible. Please donate at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The attacks in Boulder and Atlanta mean America's debating once again the role of guns in society. There are calls for new laws from Denver to D.C. And you have a lot of questions about guns, gun sales, gun restrictions. CPR's investigative team has been fielding those questions, and reporter Ben Marcus has answers. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me again. And before we get to listener questions, let's lay out some basic facts around the purchase of the firearm used to kill 10 people in Boulder. So it was legally purchased a week before the shooting, which was the same day as the Atlanta spa mass shooting. We don't know if that was just a coincidence or not. Uh, It's a Ruger 5.56. Now, this is a pistol variant of the AR-15. I had never heard of anything like this before until this shooting. Uh, It looks a lot like an AR. In fact, in reviews, they say it looks like an AR. It shoots like an AR. Uh, But it is smaller. The barrel is significantly shorter. It doesn't have a stock that you would brace against your shoulder. It has what they call a brace, which you should wrap around your forearm, but it looks a lot like a stock and can can be used like a stock. Uh, We don't know anything about the ammo magazine. We don't know if it was a high capacity mag, for instance. Those were banned in 2013 in Colorado, anything more than 15 rounds. Uh, So still a lot that is unknown, but in a unique um, kind of firearm in this shooting. Help us understand the distinction between stock embrace why that's important just briefly sure if it's a stock and you use it against your shoulder to increase accuracy that makes it a short barrel rifle if it has a short barrel and then that's subject to all kinds of federal restrictions that are not included if it's a pistol you mentioned the suspect had purchased the gun legally but he did have a prior criminal conviction right That's right. So he did have a misdemeanor, third degree assault. It was for a high school fight. He walked across the classroom, punched a student who fell on the floor. He got on top of the student and kept punching. Uh, He was sentenced to anger management as part of his probation. And people we spoke with uh, who were familiar with his time uh, on the wrestling team at Arvada West said he was known for his temper and said he had, quote, anger management issues. Uh, But that was not a felony which would have prevented him probably from buying a gun had it been a domestic violence 
Edwards misdemeanor that would have prevented him from buying a gun, but that was not the case here. Um, as far as we can tell, based on our research, there's no other signs that he had serious run-ins with the law in the last three years or so. I don't imagine what you've described there would come even close to qualifying as a mental illness, which can preclude a legal firearms purchase, right? That's right. Misdemeanor assault and anger management are pretty far from an adjudication of mental illness. In the case of mental illness, there is a federal prohibition of gun ownership. It says that a person who has, quote, adjudicated as a mental defective or has been committed to a mental institution, unquote, cannot purchase a firearm. And we have no idea, but we have no evidence to suggest that this happened, um, that he ever spent any time in psychiatric treatment or in any kind of facility. Ben Marcus, let's jump into some listener questions. A big one here from Carly DeFilippo of Denver. What's the history of gun laws in Colorado? Sure. So depending on how you gauge these things, depending on which side of the aisle you're standing on, Colorado arguably has been an innovator on firearms regulations. For what it's worth, the Gifford Center ranks Colorado 15th in the nation, gives it a C-plus for gun laws. Uh, unfortunately, most of these gun laws followed mass shootings from Columbine to Aurora. Uh, back in 2000, there was the gun show loophole that was closed by voters. 70% of voters um, did this after the legislature uh, failed to act. Three of those four guns in the Columbine shooting were purchased at a gun show. And And then the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012 ushers in changes, as you said. Yeah, big changes. A magazine restriction, again, to 15 rounds. It passed because James Holmes walked into the theater with a 100-round drum um, that he used in the Aurora Theater shooting. Um, There's also universal background checks. So private sales uh, were then covered under background checks. Colorado also has red flag law. And this allows a petitioner to ask the court to temporarily take someone's firearms. This passed after Douglas County Deputy Zachary Parrish was killed by a mentally unstable man. And this is a good um, uh, example to talk about lobbying and fundraising. Every time there's a gun control uh, measure that is floated at the legislature, there is this, it's described by pro-Second Amendment groups as an affront to the Constitution and will lead to a broad seizure of guns. And the red flag law was a good example of that. A lot of money was raised. Half the county said they wouldn't enforce it. But in the end, there wasn't this broad seizure of guns. According to a Denver Post analysis, it has been used a little more than 100 times, mostly by the police themselves. And I've read these petitions. They police detail cases asking to remove guns from people who are violent or unstable. And of course, sometimes this is reflected in gun purchases as well, not just in money spent when these issues come to the fore. Uh, Speaking of the red flag law, Lizbeth Kavanaugh of Englewood wants to know if the family of the alleged Boulder shooter had used the red flag law, would that have stopped those murders. You know, it raises an interesting question about how difficult it is to prove that a law, a gun control uh, safety measure, can actually prevent a shooting. We just don't know enough about the family's concerns to even guess whether a judge would have signed off on a petition. And we haven't seen any evidence that there ever was one filed. Then there's discussion in Colorado and in Washington about an assault weapons ban, which raises the question what is an assault weapon anyway? Yeah, this is tricky territory. Uh, Aren't all firearms to some degree capable of assault? Um, Congress did try to define this in the 1994 ban on assault weapons. Uh, If it named a dozen specific uh, weapons, including AR-15s, Tech-9s, MAC-10s, which were all popular with shooters, um, two or more characteristics, like a pistol grip, 
uh, instead of like a standard rifle grip, uh, telescoping stock uh, pistol with a magazine that goes outside the pistol grip and is in front of the trigger. So it looks a lot like an AR-15 rifle, mm. uh, a barrel shroud that would prevent burns. So allowing you to grip along the barrel, again, allowing you to have accuracy. Uh, those were banned. Um this kind of stuff drives gun enthusiasts nuts when I talk to them, though, because these laws are passed largely on how a gun looks. Uh, and some of these same functionality uh, is still present in guns that are perfectly legal. And, of course, the key question is, would the gun used in Boulder have fallen under like that ban? It probably would have. Though you know, the ban did not exist. Um, it has been expired since 2004. Uh, had it been in place, uh, it would have been covered under that law. Here's another listener question, Ben Marcus, from Brooks Johnson. I want to know why our pro-gun lobby is so powerful. Brooks says it seems that every attempt at even a minor change in gun laws is instantly shut down. I think that's really true at the federal level, not necessarily in Colorado. Colorado has managed to pass important gun restrictions over the last decade or so. Uh, we talk about money and fundraising and political donations, and that's all true, and that affects the debate. It's also true that a lot of people enjoy shooting. You go to a gun range, talk to the people who are there. They are having fun. Uh, this is a pastime for them, a fun one. Hunting is a generational sport. Guns are deeply ingrained in American cultures, particularly in the West. Um, people also have fear. And so guns give them comfort um, in a world that scares them a little. More guns were sold in Colorado last year than ever before. 152,000 more guns than the year before. Uh, I'm told by gun stores, the pandemic and lockdowns brought in a lot of new buyers and typical gun buying binges of the past. It's people who already owned guns buying another one. Mm. These are a lot of new buyers. New buyers in the pandemic. A listener named Wendy asks about the incidence of mass shootings in other countries. I feel like this is a common discussion point. She says, I believe but do not recall for certain that we are the main one with this problem. She means in the, you know, in the world, in the globe. Yeah, it depends on how you define mass shooting. It's not a universally accepted term. Crime statistics are kept differently from state to state, from nation to nation. It makes it difficult to make a comparison. One libertarian think tank that defined mass shootings as killing four or more people, not in a war, but in a public place. It ranked the U.S. 11th in the world between 2009 and 15. But a University of Alabama associate professor who's also studied this defines mass shootings as four or more people killed in any setting, not just a public one. And he expands that time frame out to 1966. When you do that, he comes up with the U.S. as first in the world for mass shootings. But regardless, the Second Amendment is enshrined in the Constitution. The Supreme Court precedent has set up. It is difficult to restrict guns in this country. The politics and the money make it hard. I mean, in Newtown, a class full of first graders, no major change to national gun laws. Um, and these really aren't new, right? In the 1930s, gun laws were passed in response to mass shooting by gangsters. Um, also, mass shootings, frankly, are rare, like what we see in Boulder, despite the massive media coverage that we see. Most gun deaths are tied to gangs and domestic violence, and the vast majority of gun deaths are, in fact, suicide. Ben Marcus, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. He's on our investigative team at Colorado Public Radio answering your questions about guns in the state. This is CPR News. Let's catch up now with Colorado's first Muslim lawmaker, 
Iman Judah was elected in November to represent House District 41, which covers Aurora. She's two and a half months into her first legislative session, and she's busy, currently working on multiple bills focused on health care, immigration services, and housing, to name a few. We'll talk about her legislative work and her path to elected office. Representative, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. First off, I understand your father used to deliver the opening prayer in both chambers of the Colorado legislature, and uh, you used to go with him for this. I did. He would take me along as a child and as an adolescent, and I would watch him on the side of both chambers as he would uh, deliver the opening prayer multiple times over the session. And I had the opportunity to do that last month in the House as a member. You delivered your own prayer. I did. And I did it in the theme of the architectural features of a dome, knowing that mosques have a dome, our own temple to democracy in Colorado has a dome, and the similarities that that carries for the people. Do you think that witnessing your father in action when you were little, do you think that was formative? Is that partly why you now call the Capitol a workplace? I think it definitely contributed to those formative years. And I think that he and my mother set the expectation that there is no ceiling. And as Muslims and as immigrants and refugees, uh, we have an obligation to contribute positively to our community. And being an elected official is one way I'm doing that. And so the message from your family was that there was no ceiling. But I have to think that the message from society was not always that. It's true, and it's unfortunate. I think there are realities that I grew up with and that many people of color, brown, black, indigenous communities, immigrants and refugees, um, marginalized communities are all facing. And for me, that often translated into Islamophobic you know, hate speech or actions and um, really fear around the other. So putting myself in spaces where decisions were being made uh, with the caveat that I was not there to be a box that was checked. I was not a warm body. I was in fact influencing policy uh, is how I built the relationships and came together over around shared values. Speaking of your father, he and your mother were both immigrants from Palestine, and they helped found the Colorado Muslim Society in the 1960s. Do you remember much from that time, like what it was like for your parents to start? It was the first mosque in the state, correct? It was, and it remains the largest mosque um, in the Rocky Mountain region. And I am proud to continue to attend that mosque. It's in my district, House District 41. Growing up, I remember when they broke ground in the 80s. You know, I spent my weekends there. I spent Fridays, you know, when we weren't in school during congregational prayers, evenings during Ramadan. Well, and I think about how COVID closed houses of worship Uh, It put the kibosh for a time on the legislature gathering. It has hit people of color especially hard. And there you sit, Representative, at the heart of those three realities. Yeah. Reflect on that for me. Just like the rest of the world, we were asking ourselves, what do we do? We were, for the first time, closing our mosque 
that serves over 5,000 people, closing it during Ramadan, not hosting iftar dinners for our community and for our non-Muslim community to have them and invite them over. We were not gathering for tarawih prayers or nightly Ramadan prayers. We didn't have Eid celebrations. And that was evident throughout the entire Muslim world of 2 billion people. And you're right, the legislative process stopped and we really needed to put the well-being of Colorado first. As Muslims, we believe that we have an obligation to heed the warnings of experts, right? And to make sure that we are not contributing to risky behavior. So traveling to a place that has sickness or traveling from a place that has sickness. And so we wanted to emulate these Islamic values and follow the rules put forth not only by the governor, but by Tri-County and CDPHE. Tri-County, the health department that covers where the mosque is. I understand that as a new representative, you helped set up a pop-up COVID vaccination site at the Colorado Muslim Society's mosque in Denver, Masjid al-Abu Bakr. Yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to use my platform as a representative to dispel a lot of fear and myths around getting the vaccine in our community um, while opening it up to non-Muslims and neighbors to come get vaccinated. Um, What were the hesitations? I'm just curious what prompted people to be wary. You know, I think the Muslim community was not immune to misinformation. Mm. A lot of that traveled, you know, electronically and influenced some folks and made them afraid. I feel incredibly blessed to use my platform, you know, to tell the governor's office, listen, I think a great way to reach these folks is in fact in places they feel comfortable, in places they trust, and that's their houses of worship. Let's talk, let's talk some policy, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Several of the laws you're now trying to pass have to do with health care. One big issue you're tackling is universal health care. Colorado could be the first state to have a so-called public option. Why is this one so important to you? For a few reasons. One is lived experience. Um, I remember when I was 15, I was diagnosed with a pre-existing condition, and I went and saw a specialist for 15 minutes. And then we were in the reception area. My mom was writing a check for $350. And I felt guilty. I felt like a burden on my family. My father was a small business owner. And I know that if he had something like a public option to offer his small business, to offer his employees, not only would he have been insured, but his family would have been insured. And we would not have been stuck with that generational trauma of health inequity, just like many brown and black communities are, just like many immigrants and refugees in rural communities are facing. So there's, for me, a real sense of health equity. Now, I also understand that it would be ideal if we had universal health care. Short of an act of Congress or Colorado voters dismantling Tabor, A public option is a great step towards health equity and making sure that people can actually be covered with quality plans and not find themselves using the emergency room for primary care visits. The idea with a public option is that there are places in the state 
that have a very limited number of private insurers and where costs are astronomical. Talk to the person, though, who is reluctant to see any kind of rapprochement between the government and healthcare. I think what I would say to those folks is the health inequities that brown and black communities, that rural communities are currently facing, is incredibly un-American. And if we want to realize health equity, health justice, really, um, we need to make sure that folks that are uninsured or underinsured have a pathway to becoming insured and not just getting insured by name, actually being covered with quality healthcare plans that cover the procedures and services that they need set by the people, right? And the rates that they're able to afford. You are also trying to establish something called the Office of New Americans. Can you explain what that would be? Yeah, I'm really excited about this opportunity. In conjunction with the governor's office, we would like to establish an Office of New Americans here in Colorado to really be a clearinghouse, a centralized network of resources that will provide uh, immigrants and refugees and first-generation Americans a hub for everything that they need to call Colorado home. And I think it's important to remember that first-generation Americans are a big part of that. I found myself oftentimes navigating these spaces for my parents, translating and, you know, looking up resources, but really didn't feel like I had someone, an agency or an office to really lean on. This would be presumably a multilingual office. It would encompass, there is already a state refugee coordinator, for instance. I I gather that that person would fall under the umbrella here. Yeah, and we're working all of the details out, but absolutely. And, And that was a big part for me as well, was making sure that the resources, the staff is a reflection of the people they they receive and that they serve. How will it be paid for? Uh, The first few years, there is grant funding for it, which is great. That takes away the burden from the state. And then from there, we go back to the state for appropriations. Before we go, are there people in your own Muslim community for whom your election was particularly moving? Absolutely. You know, I'm thinking of my friend's daughter, Noelle. She is uh, 19, and she got to vote for the first time this election season, and she voted for a Muslim woman to represent her in my district. That was really moving for me. You know, I think we do this work and sometimes we forget the, the, the switches that can be flipped sometimes. That was another thing that I don't think I was expecting was after my election was the international attention that I got hmm. from Australia to Austria to Norway, Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, Brazil, Canada. You know, my greater Muslim and Arab community was proud that Colorado elected their first Muslim and Arab woman. Representative, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Iman Judah represents Colorado's House District 41. In January, she became the first Muslim lawmaker in this state. 
The pop-up memorial outside the King Supers in Boulder has evolved since the shooting, which killed 10 people. CPR's Monica Castillo has been observing it over time and considers what its future may be. Less than a day after the mass shooting in Boulder, the flowers began to arrive. So did the balloons, candles, signs, paintings, notes, and stuffed toys. The tributes to those lives lost have taken many shapes and forms, like the musical salute cellist Louis Saxton is performing at the pop-up memorial. I was very nervous to come back the first day because I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to be here after the event had happened. Saxton has come here each day for 10 days to pay his respects to the 10 lives lost. He was at the store himself and narrowly escaped the shooter. I felt so much guilt for having made it out, and so I wanted to to pay my respects and give back what I could to those who were not as fortunate as I was. The University of Colorado freshmen chose pieces of music that conveyed sadness and solace. Music is one of those universal languages that everybody and nobody knows, where it's, it's oftentimes much better at conveying emotions than words are. So I feel like everyone is able to relate a little bit. While the memorial grows each day, the Museum of Boulder is already thinking about how to preserve what it represents for this community. Lori Preston leads the Boulder Strong Project within the museum. There are so many family members of victims that because it's a pandemic, can't travel and they can't experience what many in our community in Boulder are experiencing by going to the site or driving past it. And we want to be prepared to have these items so that they can, when they're able, visit them and still gain somewhat of the sense of what the community wanted to express. The challenge is knowing what to take and when, since the memorial is still helping some in Boulder process the shooting and honor the victims. Curator Chelsea Pennington-Hahn has to make some of the tough decisions. It's you know, a question of how do you collect something while you're also grieving and also dealing with that situation. We've been doing that for the past year with the pandemic and the racial justice movement. That's sort of this idea of rapid response collecting is a really important idea for museums right now and, and going forward. The Museum of Boulder got advice on how to do that from the Regional Museum in Orlando, Florida. They had to figure it out for themselves after the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016. The thing that I've really taken to heart is that remembering that these are memorials first. They're not collections of artifacts or things like that. And so as a collection specialist, my sort of gut was like, it's going to rain, it's going to snow, like how do we protect them? And she just sort of reminded, you don't get the memorial first. And so weather is going to happen. As the museum tries to save what it can, the memorial is still growing and changing. Flowers are wilting and mourners put new ones in their place. A week after the shooting on Monday, Tim Johns walks up to fasten a sign he made with his two teenage daughters. His daughters aren't ready to come here themselves. They personally knew the business owner down on Pearl Street because they've been interacted with her a lot in her shop. That's Trelana Barkowiak, one of the 10 people who died. They're very sad. It's hard for them to come by here. So he's here by himself. I haven't driven by here since it happened, and I wanted to see everything, so... John says making the sign together was a chance for him and his daughters to pay their respects to those they lost. There's an outpouring of goodness in our community. People really do care about each other. As more mourners stop by the memorial to pay their respects, 
lay down flowers, light candles, or leave poems and art, it continues to be a living part of the community's outpouring of grief and support. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. Among the people who've placed flowers at the memorial is Valerie Zarek of Boulder. She lost a friend in the shooting, Suzanne Fountain. Zarek was thinking about the tulips she placed, about the job she was asking them to do, the weight they'd carry. And she wrote a short poem about them in three parts. Tulips. One. My spring flowers this year are for a grave, not a grave, a fence surrounding a grocery store, not a grocery store, a crime scene, not a crime scene, 10 crime scenes, a rapid fire of crime scenes, in the checkout line, not a line, a scream, a twisting fall. Two, they are tulips, young and red, and everyone I try to talk to talks about guns and angry men, and the dust is still in the air like ash from a volcano, and they want to cast laws, and I do too, but, but today's tears will become their own bullets by tomorrow if I don't open my own lips and wail. Three, they are red and young, and I'm planning to hang them as if they've done something wrong. Leave them to shrivel on a cyclone fence as though these deaths will be a little less painful as we watch something else die, already cut from their source. I wrap their green open stems in paper towel and water and plastic. Thank them. Plead with them to be brave, to hold strong. They have a lot of work to do. Valerie Zarek of Boulder with the poem Tulips. It honors her late friend Suzanne Fountain, who was murdered in the mass shooting at King Supers. Fountain was a local actress and financial counselor. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Maps can take you places you've never been and show you something you've never seen. I'm Anna Campbell. The team at Denverite has been combing the city for Map Week. How did neighborhoods get their shapes? Where could another dispensary be squeezed in? And could your neighborhood affect your life expectancy? These are just some of the Map Week stories you'll get from Denverite in your inbox and at denverite.com. Powered by Colorado Public Radio. Hot shops are a possibility in Grand Junction. On Tuesday, voters will decide whether to allow dispensaries in the Western Slope's largest city after a years-long ban. CPR's Tina Sieg is based in Grand Junction and is following this election. Hi, Tina. Hello. Many other Western Slope communities allow marijuana sales. What's the background with uh, Grand Junction and pot? 
So once upon a time, there actually were dispensaries here. They were medical dispensaries. Uh, But in 2010, the city council voted to close them. And then the next year, voters chose to ban any sort of dispensaries here. Mm. And that was even before recreational weed was legal in Colorado. Now, there have been all these grumblings over the years about overturning this pot ban, especially as, you know, Palisade and Debec, they're these nearby small towns. They've been really profiting from their pot stores. But there's just never been enough steam to get the issue off the ground here. Uh, Last year, though, the city decided it was time to revisit the pot shop question, and they created an advisory group to help draft ballot language. And here we are. How do locals feel about this? Uh, It is so hard to know because I've actually not heard anybody talking about it. And I was sort of, I was, I know, I know. It's like I was worried, like, maybe I'm not paying attention to my town. Maybe I'm not really taking the read of the temperature, the mood of the town. But I was talking with uh, Diane Schwenke. She heads the Grand Junction Area Chamber of Commerce. And she said the same thing. I just talked to someone this morning who was talking about marijuana. And I said, well, did you vote yet? And he goes, no, why? And I said, because you get the chance to weigh in on this. And so it's like, it's just a non-campaign that's happening. So there's no visible campaign for or against this. And the chamber is actually taking a neutral position. I don't think of marijuana as something people usually feel neutral about. So what do you think's going on? Yeah, I mean, I was really stumped. You know, it would be a very big change here. But Schwenke had two guesses as to what's going on. And one was that, you know, there are already there already are two pot shops about 10 miles away in Palisade. And the second is that, you know, the ballot language is vague and confusing. And voters, they might not know what they're voting on. Am I voting for six pot shops, eight pot shops? Is it going to be cultivation? Is it just going to be retail? Those questions aren't in the ballot. So there's this kind of, okay, what are we voting on? You know, it doesn't help that there are actually two measures here. One would repeal the ban on dispensaries from 2011. The other would set up a tax structure for the new ones. And that's just a lot for folks to parse. You've mentioned, Stina, those dispensaries being a boon for nearby Palisade and Tobac, both in Mesa County. Does Grand Junction have plans for what it would do with the tax revenue if this passes? I mean, it does, but it it still seems a little bit vague. The tax would be 8.25 percent, and the ballot language says that would be used for both the enforcement of marijuana rules and also to help fund parks and recreation. And that could include a rec center, which would be a big deal because that was a really hot topic here about two years ago. And back then, voters, they chose not to fund it with a tax increase. So this could be a way of making that project finally happen but they just there are no guarantees and there are just a lot of other parks projects also in the works. Any indications at all which way voters are leaning? Yeah, not that I see. You know, in Schwanky of the chamber, she said she also has no idea. Um, she said that, you know, without any organized campaigns for or against, people are she believes people are just going to vote solely based on their personal feelings about marijuana. Either I personally think it's a good idea or I personally don't think it's a good idea and I'm going to vote my my gut on this one um, versus reasoned arguments on both sides of the issue. Did you give her the chance to reveal how she voted? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> 
I was one of those that went with my gut. How's that? <laughs> Quite a diplomatic answer. Tina, thank you so much. My pleasure. CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg, based in Grand Junction, where voters will decide Tuesday whether to allow pot shops. Proof now that history repeats itself. A century ago, social distancing and masks were the order of the day, and so were debates about them. We tell the story in a bonus episode of Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. A special guest joins your host, Andrew Kenny. Unprecedented. Never before seen. Uncharted waters. You have definitely heard these words about the pandemic. I have probably said them, but they're not quite true. We're not necessarily in uncharted waters right now. It's just that we haven't charted them for about a century. That's Derek Everett, a historian at Colorado State University. He's talking, of course, about the 1918 flu. There have been a lot of comparisons made in the last year between that pandemic and this one. But you may not know much about what happened when the flu hit Colorado. We're going to learn how Colorado's governor, the Jared Polis of 1918, handled his pandemic and how the people of Colorado reacted. And as Professor Everett tells it, it's a story with some really incredible moments, a few bizarre developments, and ultimately a lot of tragedy. It's a story that he's been reconstructing for a few months now. The main inspiration for for what research I've done about uh, the influenza epidemic connects to my work at the state capitol. Um, I've been a guide and I've done research at the capitol since 1997. And so it's it's kind of an ongoing obsession with me. And I was particularly interested to know how the capitol and state government specifically responded to the influenza pandemic when you compare it to coronavirus pandemic. Okay, let's start at the beginning. The 1918 flu is commonly called the Spanish influenza. But actually, the very first documented outbreak happened about 500 miles east of Denver in Fort Riley, Kansas, in March of 1918. It should be the Kansas influenza, but that that wouldn't go well with the American uh, newspapers in 1918. So the fact that for whatever reason, reporting on it in, in Spain got all of the attention, that's how the name's been attached to it is the Spanish influenza. Obviously, World War I was happening at the same time, and with so many troops mobilizing, it didn't take long for the outbreak to spread next door to Colorado. Everett traced its first appearance here to ROTC cadets who had trained in Kansas and brought it back to the university in Boulder. As, as we see with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, college campuses are great breeding grounds for disease. You've got lots of people from different backgrounds gathered together. They go home for the weekends, they go to parties, and and it'll spread pretty rapidly through the community. From there, it moves to Denver, out to the small towns on the plains, up the mountain passes, where soon enough, towns like Gunnison were blockading themselves to try to keep it out. The only real defenses against it sound pretty familiar. Social distancing, masks, hygiene. And as this turns into a full-scale crisis, there are really two people you need to know. One is the governor. The governor of Colorado during the Spanish influenza and during World War I was a man named Julius Caldeen Gunter. And Governor Gunter was elected um, in 1916, so took office January of 1917. He was a member of the Democratic Party. Gunter, or Gunta, if you prefer the Germanish pronunciation, or maybe I shouldn't even try, was 59 years old. He was in his second year in office. He was a transplant from Arkansas, a lawyer. He had a huge caterpillar mustache, 
and even before the flu arrived, he was focused on one gigantic priority. For one thing, Gunter was coordinating the state's efforts to support World War I and make sure that not only were we recruiting soldiers to send to Europe, but uh, food production and all of the manufacturing that was going on in Colorado for the war effort. Gunter's focus was much more on the war than it was on the epidemic. Now, Gunter's not necessarily downplaying the virus. He was just kind of disengaged. He put out a message of caution, but he didn't put a lot of force behind it. He acknowledged that there was a particularly strong strain of influenza that year and that people should take precautions. They shouldn't gather in large groups. They uh, should wear face masks if they go out in public. But unlike Governor Polis, who has used plenty of executive orders in modern times, Everett says the governor back then left a lot of the pandemic response to a much younger man, basically the state's chief medical officer, Dr. Erlo Kennedy. And history doesn't record, or at least I don't know, whether he had a mustache too. He was a physician from the town of Basalt in western Colorado and had also served in, in the legislature. He had been the clerk of the House of Representatives. He had uh, powerful friends at the state house. So this Dr. Kennedy spent a lot of time talking to reporters, spreading this message that actually, yeah, we should be taking this seriously. You, you can think of Dr. Kennedy as the Dr. Fauci of the influenza epidemic on at least a, a statewide level. He was really the voice. He was the name that people were reading in the newspapers. For the most part, Dr. Kennedy was waging a war of words and convincing and suggestion to stop the virus. His health board did put out some statewide directives trying to ban big events and things like that, but he didn't necessarily have that much direct power. So instead... Most of the regulations and most of the enforcement of regulations for Colorado during the uh, influenza epidemic were left to counties, were left to cities. Which had mixed results. In places like Denver, the city ordered people to wear masks in businesses and streetcars, and at least initially, there was almost utter disregard. That's how the Rocky Mountain News described it, saying thousands continued to throng the big 16th Street stores without masks, and that the order was cause of mirth. By the way, it's interesting to me that in that same article, the Denver mayor comes across a lot like Jared Polis does when it comes to masks in particular, kind of a guilt-tripping social responsibility theme. The wearer is not only protecting himself, but is protecting others. It is the moral obligation of every person to wear the mask, in a streetcar or in a store. The one who fails to do so is not only endangering his own health, but the health of others. Anyway, a lot of people just really weren't willing to listen, especially at first, and government leaders generally were not willing to push back too hard. Denver and other cities swung back and forth on their orders. Denver eventually gave up on that mask mandate, and, you know, those cities just didn't have that much support from the state. Yes, the governor was urging social distancing, but the actual state government was just business as usual. And not only was it open for regular business, but, you know, at the Capitol, you would have people traveling there from Route County, from Moffat, from Yuma, from Baca to go to state land board auctions for uh, buying more land for farms. You had people coming to the capital from across the state and to a place that didn't really have a lot of coronavirus precautions in place. And after those auctions, they went back home, maybe bringing the virus. And it was this perfect breeding ground 
Dr. Kennedy, the chief medical officer, doesn't entirely get off the hook either. I read in Dr. Everett's article that the health board convened a meeting of 200 doctors in the Capitol in the same room to discuss influenza, a meeting at which they didn't even really decide anything. And influenza definitely did make its way into the Capitol. There was one especially striking scene in November 1918. The state treasurer collapsed in his office with influenza and had to be carried back to his house while several other members of his staff came down with the illness. And yet, as you guessed, nothing changed. Uh, everybody hold your breath while they carry the state treasurer out and, and then we'll get back to business. Of course, they did not have the technology of today. There was no plexiglass, no Zoom, but it's almost like they went out of their way to keep on keeping on. They not only convened the regular Colorado Assembly in January of 1919, but they actually brought the Wyoming state legislature down for a joint session. It's like double the legislating. So you have two bodies meeting all packed together into these chambers. Meanwhile, of course, the virus is raging all across the state and the world. Dr. Kennedy is apparently organizing field hospitals and sending out doctors to distant communities. He's talking to every reporter who will listen, making himself into this household name. And he was pretty successful. Everett thinks that the health board convinced a lot of cities and towns to actually enforce those regulations. But even so, a lot of people didn't make it. The estimates are around 7,500 Coloradans died in just a few months. That's more than the coronavirus has killed, and it was at a time that the state population was much, much smaller. Probably the most prominent casualty of the influenza epidemic in Colorado, and it's, it's kind of painful to even think about this, is Dr. Kennedy. Did you catch that? Dr. Kennedy himself, the Dr. Fauci of 1918 Colorado, died after catching the flu. This was an extraordinarily awful time. Some towns may have lost 10% of their population. But I can imagine that Dr. Kennedy's death was especially resonant. And so it's it's like the ultimate insult to injury that the the most prominent death in Colorado from the influenza epidemic was the person who was doing his level best with almost no support from other state officials to try to keep Coloradans safe. By the summer of 1919, a few months after Kennedy's death, the outbreak had started to weaken. Governor Gunter survived, but his career ended in the middle of the pandemic. Not at all because of his handling of the flu, but because of the thing he'd actually been focused on, World War I. His party turned against him for not being anti-German enough. And he was replaced by another guy in 1919, Governor Shoup, who was similarly hands-off about the outbreak. So, two governors during the pandemic, both pretty passive... That's a big difference from now, when Governor Polis has used extraordinary powers to combat COVID-19. He's met some pretty harsh resistance for that, but Everett thinks that Polis will ultimately be remembered more kindly by history. And at the end of the day, if you have to be judged for either overreacting or underreacting, at least if you are overreacting, you can't be accused of fiddling while Rome burns. Now, with vaccinations underway, it looks like the current pandemic might be entering its own ending phase. I wanted to know, what kind of mark does a time like this leave on society? Are we heading toward the Roaring Twenties? What should we expect? And Everett kind of gave two possibilities. The first option is the 1920s, but the thing to know is that despite all the images of bright vaudeville lights and flapper dresses, that was a reactionary decade in politics. The impact of the war, the impact of influenza hitting at the same time, really made the United States kind of sit back and, and process, say, you know, 
we, we need we need to protect ourselves. We need to cocoon. In Colorado in particular, that took an extremely ugly form. Well, bear in mind the 1920s nationwide and in Colorado was the glory days of the Ku Klux Klan, where you had an incredibly powerful nativist movement, anti-Catholic, anti-Black, anti-Hispanic, anti almost anything that wasn't white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That really took off here in 1920, and Everett sees it, again, as a reaction to the war and to the flu. And Colorado in the 1920s was one of the two most enthusiastic states as far as the Klan was concerned. We had a Klan governor, we had half the state legislature controlled by the Klan. But he doesn't actually expect that we'll see that kind of horrific retrenchment, not in Colorado or nationally. Instead, he's more hopeful. The comparison he makes is to the end of World War II, when the country reacted to a period of suffering and self-denial by doubling down on big investments in things like infrastructure and education. I think that there is that same sense as we start to see light at the end of the tunnel that we've, we've been denied things that we enjoy, things that we want, things that we feel we deserve. Throughout the pandemic, it was such a time of confusion and frustration. And I think that there, there is going to be, I would hope at least, there's going to be a sense of, of openness and, and optimism following the pandemic as this weight is lifted off our shoulders. We will see. And there's still this question of how we'll look back and remember this past year. Before this pandemic, 1918 did not loom particularly large in the popular memory of Colorado's history or the country's. I have a feeling that 2020 will for a long time. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny with a bonus episode of Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Hear the full season at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show for today, with thanks to the team that has guided us through the current pandemic. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.